This teaching comes to you from the team at St. Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Our first reading this morning is from Luke chapter 15, beginning at the 11th verse. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick! Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Hear the word of the Lord. Today's second reading is taken from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind 
governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit who received, sorry, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Hear the word of the Lord. I want to say we're richly blessed in this congregation by people who read so well and with clarity. Um, and as a preacher, it's a bit daunting sometimes when the Bible has been really read well. I think I can only stuff it up from here. <laughs> so thank you to um, both Alicia and Viva for today and to others who serve us in this way. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the Holy Scriptures, their precepts, their promises, their directions and their light. In them, may we learn of Christ, grasp his truth, and have grace to follow in his steps. Amen. The greatest quest of the 20th century was probably not to explore the depths of outer space, but to chart instead inner space, that mysterious entity called the self. And this search has been... Uh, has captivated some of the greatest minds of the age, from Freud to Foucault and beyond. Now, in the post-Christian era, many people no longer believe that we have souls, but we certainly believe that we have selves. And yet, who is this mysterious being, the self? Who is this self that I am? Why, when I try to account for myself, is it so difficult? I am a mass of inconsistencies and contradictions. The human individual is a puzzle. And it's not just that other selves are puzzling, and, and you are, we're a riddle to ourselves. The disciplines of psychology, 
psychiatry and psychoanalysis have all tended to focus on what we might think of or describe as mental illness. For example, in the 1960s, a Scottish psychiatrist named R.D. Lang published a study of mental illness called The Divided Self, in which he claimed that many mental conditions were the result of a person experiencing what he called ontological insecurity, where a person, to use his words, cannot take the realness, aliveness, autonomy and identity of himself and others for granted. We just can't take those things for granted. So therefore you are insecure at the level of your very being, your existence. And yet, who does not experience this insecurity? It's not just the person suffering psychosis who can't take the realness, aliveness, autonomy and identity of himself or herself for granted, but all of us. And this is really a very ancient insight. The 20th century didn't come up with it. Indeed, we've been seeing how the Apostle Paul describes this very condition of the human person in his Romans letter these last few weeks, back in the first century AD. We're all walking contradictions, he says. Dr. Jekylls and Mr. Hyde's all of us. And this is true in two distinct but related ways. The first has to do with that word sin. Very unpopular word to use this day, somewhat sh- these days, somewhat shocking and distasteful to talk about ourselves as sinners, to talk about us as having sins. But it's also extremely and potently descriptive of a truth. Just being unpopular doesn't make it not true. We find that we even do things that we do not want to do. There's something profoundly true of us all. We find that the things that we want to do, we do not do. We find that we we have a standard of goodness that we ourselves do not meet. We hate stealing, yet we rob. We hate lying, yet we deceive. Who has not? We hate bigotry, and yet we are prejudiced. And these are just some of the ways we find ourselves at odds with ourselves. We say weird things like, I could kick myself. Have you thought what an odd thing that is to say? I kick. Who is doing the kicking? Who is receiving the kicking? I could kick myself. Related to this is the second problem we face, and that is to do with death, which, says Paul, is actually connected to sin as a consequence. We live in bodies that decline and suffer and die. If that's not something you've noticed about your body yet, you will. We're mortal, we're limited, finite, and yet we've got a profound sense that we're made for more. As the Bible says, God has set eternity in the human heart, and yet our bodies are not eternal. I've noticed in my encounters with the dying, a disappointment, even amongst those who are extremely elderly, a kind of shock that death has come. We may want pain and discomfort to end, but we do not want life to end. So we resonate with Paul's agonised cry at the end of Romans chapter 7 from last week. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Who will help me? No self-help or therapy will save him. No moral program or educational system will help him. 
Just trying harder to keep God's law will certainly fail. So how can he save himself from himself? But in our passage today, Paul has great news, great news of a victory. In fact, he started saying that back in chapter 7 because he ends there by saying in verse 25 of chapter 7, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. The message for Romans 8, as it unfolds, is that in Christ you have freedom from sin and death because there is nothing to condemn you and because you have the spirit of life which means you will be raised from the dead. And because of this, you are now adopted as a child of God, whom you now can call Father. Our task today is to hear these deep truths and to believe them about ourselves, because I think we sometimes struggle to believe that they could be true. So important is this passage. It's this, when I go to the bedside of someone dying, I've got about three passages that are my go-tos. Perhaps Jesus saying, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden. Perhaps Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, because people know that off by heart. But I always go to Romans 8. It is that significant a chapter of the Bible. It is that hard for us to believe that there is now no condemnation for us. So let's plunge in. There is no more stunning declaration of the gospel in the scriptures than what we get in chapter 8, verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As Charles Wesley put it in the classic hymn, No condemnation, now I dread, Jesus and all in him is mine. The gospel the good news of Jesus Christ is a declaration of your complete vindication. Not because you were innocent, but because though you were guilty, God did what you could not do. He paid for your sin. And how did he do it? Well, Paul explains it in verses 3 and 4. This was the work of Jesus. He sent his son in the likeness of our flesh. To live among us as one of us who was like us in every way and yet was without sin. This one became, says Paul, a sin offering. And so Jesus was the instrument by which God condemned sin in sinful flesh. He was offered for us as a sacrifice on our behalf as one of us. Our weak flesh could not keep the law, but Christ has done it. He has more than fulfilled the law. And in him, your sin has now been condemned so that now you have no condemnation. There is nothing to condemn you. You are justified, righteous before God. His spirit now lives in you. And I'm speaking, I'm saying you singular here, by the way. You. <laughs> there is nothing to condemn you now. His spirit now lives in you, and you have life. Which means you are free from the law of sin and death, the, the law that could only bring about sin and death. Who will rescue us from this body of death? Well, says Paul, God has done it in Christ, so that now indeed you are free. Oh, do you hear him? No condemnation. None in Christ Jesus. Or maybe you didn't think you were condemned anyway. 
Maybe that you, you're somewhat proud in that regard and then the rest of Romans you need to have read to have heard the message that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That the wages of this sin is death. That there is no one righteous, not even one, not even you. And yet, says Paul, there is no condemnation now for those who trust in Christ. People find it hard to believe because they see the weight of their own sins too. It can seem too good to believe for that reason. Or perhaps we're so used to our judgmental society that we cannot believe that God would not be the same as the Bishop of Liverpool in the 19th century, J.C. Ryle, once said, Jesus is far more willing to save sinners than sinners are to be saved. I think that is true. Or worse, perhaps the vibe you've gotten from people like me in the church is that God is always mad with us, to quote or to misquote Homer Simpson, like a parent who's never happy with, what, with anything we do. But in Christ, God has received a sin offering on your behalf and now does not condemn you. Little sins or large, there is no condemnation for you. The power of sin is broken. You are forgiven. But how does this apply? How does what Jesus did apply to you and me? Well, that's what Paul goes on to explain in verses 5 to 13. This is the work of the Holy Spirit who now lives in us. Now, it's not a coincidence that this great chapter is also one of the great chapters about the Holy Spirit in the Bible. You and I still live in mortal bodies that are prone to sin and declining towards death. But if we believe in Jesus Christ, then despite all the sagging and bagging of our mortal bodies... His spirit lives in us and the spirit counteracts these forces of sin and death in us. It took me a long time to understand the spirit's role in my Christian life, how profound and central it is. I've never felt especially spiritual, I've got to say. I, I don't feel like that kind of a person. I had to grasp what Paul is saying here though. If you have the simple trust, that simple trust in Christ, then you have his powerful and life-giving spirit living in you. You are a spirit-inhabited person. The spirit lives in you, whether you feel it or not. Some people do feel it. Some people feel it differently. Some people don't notice anything tangibly. But his spirit, if you trust in Christ, lives in you. His life-giving spirit. And now you have a different mindset. You live in a different realm, as Paul says. That's what comes out in these verses, verses 5 through to 13. A contrast between the way of the flesh and the way of the spirit. We've already heard back in chapter 5 and 6 of Romans how... That if we're in Christ, we've, we've changed realms, we've changed cities. We no longer live under the rule of sin and death, or the, the flesh, he might say. Now we live instead in this new city, under the rule of Christ. We live in the city of Christ. We've changed lords, we have a new allegiance. Much the same thing is going on here. In fact, Paul uses that language, the language of realm. You've changed realms. Now firstly, 
The Spirit now brings a new mindset or attitude. It's really striking, this language of, of mind, he says. If you live in the Spirit, as you do if you've become a Christian, if you trust in Christ, then you actually have a different mind. Your mind is now open to pleasing God. Whereas once before, it was simply doing what the flesh demanded of you. When we lived according to the flesh, we lived according to the devices and desires of our own hearts. That was our obsession. We were ruled by our fears and our needs, desperate to be ourselves on our own terms. And yet, we could not escape death. Indeed, this mindset brings nothing but death. It's a vicious circle. As we see in verse 6, a mindset governed by the flesh in the end, is hostile to God, whether because it's profoundly self-righteous, it thinks it can justify itself on its own terms, or whether it is simply defiant. And pleasing God, says Paul, is impossible in this realm. The realm of the flesh cannot please God. He says in verse 8, But we not only have a new mindset in the spirit, we live in a new realm in verse 9. And this realm is not a realm of death, but a realm of life and peace. We're no longer God's enemies. Remember back in chapter 5 where we were once God's enemies, where Jesus died for us even while we were still God's enemies, and where we could not please God? We now want what God wants. By clinging to Christ, we now say, I want what God wants. I want to please him. I live only now to please him. Even though, as Paul will say in verse 10, we still have bodies that are mortal because of sin, we now have life by the Spirit because of the righteousness of Christ. And that's the bottom line then in verse 11. If the Spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then his resurrection power will give life even to your weakened, sick and aging body. This is the second reality for us to grasp. The spirit of the living God lives in you. The spirit by whom God called everything into existence from nothing. The spirit by whom God was able to give children to Abraham and Sarah, even in their old age. The spirit by whom God called Jesus, who was stone cold dead out of the tomb that first Easter day. That Spirit lives in you. There's no condemnation for you. You have resurrection life. To sin, we say, no condemnation. And to death, we say, life eternal. You will live forever. Because of this, we're in a new relationship with God. In fact, a new relationship which is not characterized by being a slave and being a master, but can be talked about in very intimate terms, the relationship of a father and his children. And there's an obligation that comes from this reality, as we see in verse 12 to 13. And Paul's been saying this all along. He's saying, look, if you've been freed from sin in this way, why would you go back and wallow in it? It would be absurd to do that. You want to be now in tune with the Spirit, the Spirit that lives in you. You want to now please your Heavenly Father since you are now able to do so. 
we're surely compelled to follow the mind of God's Spirit, to seek what God himself wants and to do it more and more. But more than that, in verses 14 to 17, as Christians, we've become children of the Heavenly Father. It's extraordinary. And if that's so, well, we want to please him. I guess this is the simplest way I've found to explain what the Christian life is about. We don't try and do good things in order to clear our books with God like he's some celestial umpire. We're now brought into relationship with him by him and we're his children and he is our father. And so what we do is want, we, we seek to please him. We live to put a smile on God's face. That is the nature of the Christian life. That is what drives Christians to do what they do. We want to now please God, the God who has declared no condemnation over us. And this is the third deep, deep truth for us today. We are not condemned. We have life eternal, the resurrection power of the Spirit living in us, and we are now children of God. The Spirit of God that lives in you has freed you so that you are not a slave to fear any longer. As we see in verse 15 here, we're not, we're not again, to live in fear as a slave might. Instead, having the Spirit means that you've been adopted as a son. Now, the word specifically says son here. In our translation, on the whole, gender makes the uh, language gender nonspecific in modern ways, uh, in, in mostly in appropriate ways. But here it's stuck with sons for a particular reason, and that is in the ancient world, and I think this is a very good practice, eldest sons, speaking as an eldest son, you see, eldest sons got the inheritance. That's how it worked. And what Paul's saying here is, that we have all become eldest sons, men and women, those who will inherit, those who have that special position of inheritance, in other words. We've all become sons in that sense. Now, inheritance has been much on our minds in the last few weeks. The monarchy, as you, as you well have noticed, passes on genetically from generation to generation. The heir to the throne is usually the child of the monarch. That's what makes the monarchy a bit of a soap opera at times because you have to get everybody to reproduce in the right order, you know, in the right way. You have to find a wife, blah, 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 blah. have to be legitimate. Uh, the heir to the throne is usually the child of the monarch. And you must be a member by birth of that very special family to even be on the list of succession. It may or may not interest you to know that, this, that, that a 32-year-old woman called Zanuska Mowat is now second, 62nd in line for the British throne. Now, to, for us to get Queen Zanuska would take some plane crash, I imagine, or a very bad case of food poisoning at Buckingham Palace. In the royal household of God, you've been adopted as a child who is also an heir. Only Jesus has the legitimacy of being God's son, we are adopted as heirs, and now we are co-heirs with Jesus. And what does this mean, since surely God does not die to leave us a fortune? But as God's heirs, we share in, the in a full place at the table in God's household. We have the status of heirs. We have intimate access to him as our father, and he hears us, as a good father does. Indeed, Paul uses the Aramaic word Abba here, which Jesus himself used when he cried out to God in the Garden of Gethsemane. He 
He cried out there, Abba, Father. When he was a toddler, Prince William used to call the Queen Gary, I'm told. Now, the children of Prince William and Princess Kate called the Queen, their great-grandmother, Gangan. Who else would dare to use such names to address a Queen? Only these special children could. But in the case of God, you have precisely this special relationship. You are his special child, adopted as an heir. We were his enemies, remember. Dead in our sins. Hostile to God. Now we are part of his family. Paul's cry has changed from the desperation of, who will rescue me from this mortal body, this body of death, inflicted by sin and doomed to the confidence and closeness of a new cry. Abba, Father, hear me in my distress. Hear me where I am. Hear me as I seek your mercy and seek to please you. And this is why Christian prayer is such an amazing privilege and quite a distinct thing. Jesus called God his Father, And he invites us to pray alongside him to our Father in heaven. It's a very distinctively Christian mode of prayer. We don't pray to some remote, far-off, distant potentate, some remote force who we do not know. But alongside Jesus, to our heavenly Father, the one whom we now live to please, the one who does not condemn us, the one whose spirit lives in us. So what will save us from our radical insecurity as human beings? It was R.D. Lang who also said, apart from the thing he said about ontological insecurity, he said, life is a sexually transmitted disease and the mortality rate is 100%. Cheery fellow. Whatever it is we make of ourselves, sin and death threaten to undo it. He was right about that. Who will rescue us from our deep uncertainty, even about ourselves? God saves us in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. In him we have a new existence and a new status. Where once we were destined for judgment, we now have no condemnation. Where once we were headed for death... We now have eternal life. And where once we were God's enemies, outsiders as far as God was concerned, nobodies, yet now we are made his children and his heirs, definitely somebodies. We have a new aim, a new purpose, a new mission, not to please our flesh, which is a pointless and hopeless exercise and is going to kill us anyway, but to please God, our Heavenly Father, There's still a messiness about this, of course. We still have bodies that are not yet transformed. We still lived in a sin-wracked world. We are still tempted in sin ourselves. We still indeed sin ourselves. We still experience suffering and death. We still experience the press of this world, not yet completely transformed. But these, as we will see in the next half of Romans 8 next week, are not now signs of the meaningless and absurdity of our existence, sign of our defeat, of our undoing as persons, but in fact signs of a future that now awaits us. They, like the pains of childbirth, groans 
which signal not an end but a new beginning, not death but indeed the coming of life. Our confidence then is not in who we make ourselves, thank goodness, but in who our Father gives us to be. One of my favourite theologians, as you know, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian who was arrested and imprisoned by the Nazis in the 1940s. And as he sat in prison, alone and afraid, very well aware that he was probably going to be executed, he could see his future in tatters. He looked back at his past. He could only see fragments. In fact, he uses that word of of fragments. He, He just talks about the pieces of his life and wondering how they could possibly be stitched together into a meaningful whole. He would never finish his work. His books were left unfinished. He would never marry his fiancée never father any children, never see his godchildren come to adulthood, never teach students again. Who was he? And what did his life amount to? One evening, sitting in his prison cell in Tegel, not far from Berlin, he wrote the poem, Who Am I? A poem that sums up very well what Romans 8 has for us today. He starts off the poem by, by describing how, in fact, he had been a solace as a as an outwardly impressive and confident person to other people in the prison. But then he turns inward, inwardly and looks at his own soul and the uncertainty of it. And he says, am I really all that which other men tell of? Or am I only that that I know of myself, restless and longing and sick like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colours, for, for flowers, for the voices of birds? Thirsting for words of kindness, for neighbourliness, trembling with anger at despotism and petty humiliation, tossing in expectation of great events, powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance, weary and empty at praying. What Christian hasn't known that? Weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making, faint and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I, this or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once, a hypocrite before others, and before myself a contemptibly woebegone weakling? Or is something within me still like a beaten army, fleeing in disorder from a victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.